and we are recording. Five, four, three, two, one. Boys and girls, we've got the trio back today for the Rap 31 monumentous realigning of the stars as all three of us are back in the building. How are we doing tonight, Dr. Xanax? I'm going well, mate. I'm going well. Good to see the return of the Slender Man. Back from the, the land of the lost, the Gold Coast, the Sunshine State, and, the, and the, the bastion of all things Christian up there. And I'm keen to hear more stories about Andy and how he gave half the, the, the schoolies up there tonsillitis. Mainly the male population. We've got jokes today, boys. We're on fire already. So how are you doing, DC? Pretty good. I'm making a conscious effort to speak closer to the mic. Uh, also looking forward to hearing Andy's escapades. I saw there was the, I think it was seven or nine news story that we shared of the, um, Fif- someone, someone, 50 nangs on the ground and we sent Agent Andos around. Use nangs? To see if they can find the, um, 50 to see, used up nangachinos. To see if you could find the nang, the nang culprit. I don't Nang-a-nana. know if he was, if he was successful. A nang, for anyone who doesn't know, is a utensil used for baking cakes, but these damn teenagers turned it into a party drug and these damn nanginators... <laughs> have been plaguing the brains of our young children, these teenagers on the Gold Coast. A few Margaret Nangers. From what I've heard, it just it makes you feel like a real degenerate afterwards. That's from my reporting on the Gold Coast, coming live at you. No idea who's, who's the Nanginator? Look, I, there's probably about 95% of the schoolies population that you could find <laughs> as the Nanginator culprits, <laughs> if I'm honest. You know, you know, when I was on schoolies, the names just weren't a thing. Just weren't a thing. How times have changed. How times have changed. Look, I would if I would say with almost all certainty that you could go into any apartment in the Gold Coast during school and find more than fifty names. Not in mine though. A lot of, a lot of it's a bustling cake baking industry up on the Gold Coast. It's also a balloon blowing industry. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of cake baking and balloon blowing. Yeah, it's funny as well because when you when someone goes in to buy them, the the people have to ask them what you what you're using it for, and, and then you have everyone oh baking cupcakes. <laughs> in yeah. there. Is that is that do they have to ask you now what you're using they, it for? I'm not sure if they have to, but they It'd be a classic government regulation. But they but they was they was doing inefficient it. and just making someone look like an absolute <laughs> idiot. Yeah, you got these these big. Just these big ballers going in there, dropping, getting, getting themselves five five cartons. I'm baking five million cupcakes. What <laughs> for the YouTube channel? <laughs> so yeah, look, we uh, we didn't find the name culprit, but you best think we we're found, on your heels. We found tens of thousands of them. Okay, and what have we got today? We got a big a big news news week. We've got uh, the Westpac scandal, which I think that's Doctor Zan. Is that you this week, or yeah, is that DC? Me. That's me. I'm Mr. Domestic, the domestic king. Yeah, house can... is my kingdom. I actually picked up the uh, the nickname the Emperor while on the Gold Coast. Okay, you just gave that to yourself. No, I didn't what actually. Because so they found out you're a filthy liar. No, because wear, you wear no clothes. Because you wear yeah, they take the jerk. Because I, I was I was wearing. <laughs> I was known for walking around my apartment with uh with nothing but a robe on, as well as also being the the true owner of the land. So I was the Emperor. No, I was expanding my territory. So, I don't assume you gave yourself that nickname. All right, have you, what, what, what's on the agenda? The, the international story mm. is the Hong Kong elections, which uh, Dr. Zanax will be covering, I assume. Uh, and so, for those who are... This has been a geopolitical masterclass, the last few uh, raps on the Asia-Pacific region. Yeah, I'm going to try and keep the, the Hong Kong story pretty brief, but um, it's, going to be, it's going to be good because... <clears throat> it's going to give you a brief. I don't know where my brief's doing it. And it's going to be brief. No. Brief, it ain't brief down there, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I want to say something about how long you last, but I can't quite put it together. Too many nanginators. Speech pathologist. Yeah, but for those of those who are familiar with the show, you know we don't just jump in there. We've got a uh, section called Jump Into Conclusions where we pay homage to the wives and the girlfriends who jump to conclusions about their boyfriends or significant others without any real logic or any real evidence. Uh, Dr. Zan. <coughs> with the rise of the internet, there's no real need to go to school anymore. Okay. Um, all right, that's... 
that's something. <laughs> something. It's really something to sink your teeth into. Mm. You know what? It's a safe meal. It's a safe meal. You won't get eliminated this week. You didn't try anything, though. You didn't risk anything. Taste. <laughs> Texture. All 1,000 taste buds. <laughs> Where's, Where's that, that from? from? That's, um, I think that's H3H3 Productions. Yeah, I made mine up as well, but that's what I think that's on the cooking shows. Yeah, they're definitely one of the master chef, one of the underpaying the workers type of type of shows. My jumping conclusion is that um, the most lethal martial art in the world is Krav Maga. It's like those those memes where it's like I'm um, like six four, hundred and fifty kilos jacked. I'm gonna smack you, and then it's, the, the the skinny guy comes out with a gun. And he's like, yeah. You know them. You know no, them memes. You know them memes. Do you know those memes? No, I assume they were like running around the Minecraft server or something. Millennials. Whatever, whatever say, say that to the Glock. Oh right. Oh, here we go. All whatever. Right. All right. What do you say when you eat a Tide Pod? This is this is that's. So you, <laughs> you've been hanging around other Tide Pod analysts for a week <laughs> in a different state. When you when you run a whole city full of Tide Pod analysts, my one is that if you're thinking about going to the Gold Coast, go to Byron instead. The schoolies? Well, just in general. Just in general. Just okay, in general. well, Andy's, Andy's been hot off the mark with his schoolies stories before the rap. Um, I want to go, I want to smack rap. Alex on the internet. Oh, that, that one's full. This rap's going to continue with a short intermission while while we change the same time. Also with some technical difficulties. I hope, I hope uh, you enjoyed the videos of the, the merch drop, maybe. the CHP merchandise what we need in the interim. <laughs> but, Alec, Andy, Andy, you continue. Just just re- tell, ramble on a little bit while I change the thing. So, uh... Why don't we want to just start straight into the um, international? Uh, no, we need to choose. I want I want you to do yours then. Your internet one. I'm m- much more keen. I think the viewers... And the listeners would be much more keen to hear about how your personal experience on schoolies well, landed you <coughs> to the conclusion <coughs> that you're better off going to Byron. I'm too sick. To Especially talk about since my about all the all the garbage you've spoken about people who live in Byron over the past couple of years. I have you never been some, to Byron. You need, you need a come to Jesus moment slash a bit of repenting to do. I've never been to Byron, so this is going to be interesting. Look, the consumers don't want to hear Andy wussing out. <laughs> Don't, don't what they want to hear is Andy stepping up to the plate and smacking that ball out that Botany Park. That Botany Park? What does that mean? Byron Bay Park, sorry. Yeah, you don't know what the bloody hell you're talking about, as per usual on the show. Um, Alright, we're back on. Does that look like a good angle? That might have been the worst intermission known to man. That little one there. It's not It's not straight, Dukes. Just like you, bro. Nothing like a bit Sick, casual bro. homophobia. <laughs> spice up the rap. Well, you know, when they look back at this episode in 20 years' time, they'll get you, Dougal. I'll be rich by then. All right, we're All back. Right, we're back on. We're back. We, we we would have started there with the international story, but just we don't we don't like to break tradition around here. We've got customs for a reason, and so instead we go to... The, I, I assume that I have to ramble on about Gold Coast and Byron Bay as a conclusion. I, yeah, <laughs> well, that's your conclusion. You've got to jump to it, bruv. Uh, Alright, so domestic story, we're talking about the Westpac scandal. Um, so, this past week, Austrac, which is an Australian government agency that, this is according to their website, uses financial intelligence and regulation to disrupt money laundering, terrorism, financing and other serious crime. Sorry, terrorism financing. Financing is not a, a crime. Now, Austrac revealed that Westpac had breached anti-money laundering and counter-terrorism and finance laws 23 million times for $11 billion worth of transactions, including several involving child abuse, which was kind of the real, the real kicker to the story, which, which got them in a lot of trouble. If the terrorism wasn't enough? It forced... Well, they weren't really involved in funding terrorism. They were involved in um, kind of lending to banks in a range of questionable countries which might have funded terrorism, and they had kind of more... Anyway, that, that's, that's a bit more complicated, a bit more up in the air. None of that's kind of proven, and the public didn't really care about that as much as they cared about the Philippines incident with the kind of child abuse, child trafficking, etc. Oh, well, so that's that's a... we're going to focus on that today. Um, <clears throat> now, 
this forced the resignation of the Westpac head honcho, Brian Hartzer, with, along with the chairman, Lindsay Maxted. Now, most of the transactions which are in question relate to the uh, failure to file reports about international funds transfers. Where are you going, Doss? I need to get a drink of water. I'm sick. Relate to, um, that's the host leaving. <laughs> Anyone's wondering. Um, First okay. bit of bad news about the banks at Ian. Okay, so the, transact- so the transactions in question relate to the Westpac's failure to file reports about, the interna- about international funds transfers. Um, and Austrac's most shocking allegation relates to thousands of transactions with the Philippines that fit a pattern consistent with child exploitation that the bank did not detect or block. Now, there's a lot of a lot of news articles which have copied and pasted this term consistent with child sex trafficking um, funding or financing, and basically all they mean is a series of uh, low value transactions going to the Philippines for no apparent reason, right? And they just failed failed to pick that up. Particularly when some of the transactions, so for example, one of the transactions was going to a guy who had been uh, convicted of child sex trafficking and live streaming child sex videos, trigger warning. But um, I don't think you're supposed to give trigger warning after oh, you say so yeah, it. Yeah, I was but, say um, that, but... but... And then also there was a convicted uh, pedophile who was then also, uh, was convict, convicted on child sex trafficking uh, offences who was then sending money to the Philippines and Westpac uh, had had di- it didn't come up in or, or Westpac didn't detect it or didn't block it or <clears throat> what have you. Now Westpac have said that it was a bungled uh, IT update in 2011, which meant that certain payments known as international funds transfers uh, instructions or IFTIs uh, with a number of banks weren't automatically being reported to Austrac as legally required. Now. The problem with this explanation is that it then went for six years, six to seven years, and they only fixed that bug in 2018, right? And so this is where Westpac acquired all these 23 million bad transactions, 23 million uh, kind of illegal transactions in up to $11 billion worth of uh, money. And Westpac had racked up a theoretical, listen to this, $40 trillion penalty uh, for their financial uh, misdemeanors, let's say, because every IFTI that is not reported to Oztrack attracts a fine of up to $21 million. So anyway, there's there's a few little uh, <clears throat> intricacies to that, but the, the, the overall problem was that Westpac did not comply with the regulation that they had to kind of oversee their <clears throat> finan- the, the financial workings of their customers. Um, <clears throat> and also... Some, some extra points to note uh, before I throw to the other guys. There is more to this story after, which I'll expand on. But uh, last year, the rival big four bank, Commonwealth, agreed to pay Oztrack $700 million to settle a similar action against it, uh, in which the regulator, Oztrack, alleged more than 53,000 breaches of anti-money laundering, counter-terrorism finance laws. Okay, so Andy, Alex, headline reactions. Might throw an Andos, he doesn't usually get the first reaction. I don't really know what to think of this. I, I'm not sure just because of like all the bureaucracy that comes with banking, just like in many other sectors, with the amount of just bigness that it has. I'm not really size, sure the word size. Yeah, I'm not really sure what to think of it. And <laughs> obviously, at, at at best case, it's just like it, not knowing. At worst case, it's. Uh, a lot more serious and something that we uh, should definitely be condemning either way. Uh, Alex? But yeah, I don't really know what to think of it. Oh, a couple of things. The first thing is that they won't they won't pay the full penalty. They won't pay anywhere near it. They'll probably pay about a billion dollars, give or take. That's what, uh, yeah. It'll be consistent with what the CBA paid, basically. Um, there won't be any real damage to shareholders. It'll be a slight downtick and then people will buy again and then it'll jump back up. How much is Australia's um how much is Australia's debt, do you know? Do you know how no, much I'm it is? I'm not sure. Anyway. Anyway, seven hundred mil or a billion dollars is quite a lot of money. Not for Westpac. No, the problem is that these banks are so big now that they've been well, deemed they to have profits of about six or seven bill a year. Yeah, sure. 
Um, and they've, they've been so they've been deemed systematically important banks, um, particularly for Australia. But the big four banks constitute basically, you know, um, anywhere between thirty and forty percent, sometimes more, of the ASX, basically. Um, and they're or they're also deemed too big to fail. And this is basically the the, the crux of the problem is that these banks will actually spend a couple hundred million bucks a year on compliance. Okay. I will talk about that. Now, why don't you hold that thought? Okay. Um, because a guy called Andrew Bushnell, I think you say, maybe it's Bushnell, he, he, he works at the Institute of Public Affairs, IPA, out of Melbourne. He wrote an article which was published in Sydney Morning Herald called More Regulation is Not the Solution to Westpac Revelations. Uh, Alex, I think you'll like a lot of what he has to say. I like it already. I'm going to read you uh, some of it, Okay. He said, a little clickbait there from, he from wrote, Bush. I've invited this guy on the podcast as well. I've sent him an email. Hopefully he replies. If you know him, then, then send him a message. He said, banks are already under, lab, uh, are already <coughs> under the weight of substantial regulatory burden. <coughs> Apart from the various civil and criminal laws to which they are subject, the Institute of Public Affairs Research has shown that banks and the finance industry are governed by 76,000 pages of regulatory dark matter referring to legislative instruments and bureaucratic guidance. An early report by Deloitte found that one in 11 Australian workers is employed in compliance, uh, with the number in finance estimated to be even higher. The uh, Australia's banking industry does not suffer a lack of rules. To begin to answer the question of, of what to do, note first that the big banks and big business generally welcome regulations and actively cooperate in its creation. For big businesses, it is well understood that compliance can be useful for limiting competition from smaller rivals that are less able to bear the associated costs. They have little incentive then to adopt an adversarial approach to regulators. Now, if you remember back in one of the real early raps, we gave, uh, in particular, Dougal gave a great analogy of this same concept with the drug cartels. People think the drug cartels, the big Pablo Escobars, are actually, you know, at war with the CIA and FBI. And to there's a small, there is an extent of truth to that, but it's actually the FBI and the CIA, if you assume that even they are still at war, who keep Pablo Escobar in business, right? So <clears throat> let's say that demand for drugs isn't going to stop, right? Demand for drugs is going to be there regardless of, and there's going to be, you know, uh, a different willingness to pay, but there's always going to be demand for drugs uh, at kind of whatever price. And then you say, well, what does the FBI and CIA trying to interfere in that do? Well, it just drives up the cost of supply. And what that means is that if you are a kind of a small-scale drug dealer, it's going to be impossible for you to smuggle your drugs into America or wherever the FBI, CIA is operating. Now, one, some people would say because that's because the FBI is doing it themselves. But other people would say, if you believe the, the kind of what's happening, it's actually if you need... Uh, uh, Million, several million dollar submarine to smuggle drugs into America. The only people that can do it are the Pablo Escobars. So by wiping out all the small scale drug people, you're actually keeping in business all the large scale drug people. Okay, now Alex is gonna go uh, do that US, USB. Yeah, use the, the one in that hand there. Yeah, um, because our ones are a bit out of juice. Uh, or actually, you could just delete some of the old footage on, on that camera there, if you want. That'd be easier. Um, so anyway, what, that, what he's saying in this case is that the big banks, because they can actually afford to have you know, one in 10% of their staff work in compliance and pay for really expensive legal counsel and uh, regulatory guidance from the government, they're the people that are going to stay in the game. You're not going to get an independent bank or a small-scale bank who can start up and actually give consumers a better product. Uh, you can't have that competition with the creative destruction come and replace the legacy banks because they just can't afford to operate under the compliance conditions. So if we continue to read from his article, um, he says, in the case of banking, the most obvious self-interest is the perpetuation of Australia's anti-competitive cartelization of the industry. Now what cartel means in economics and finance is when uh, several businesses who have a strong market share in an industry come together and say, look, we can actually charge, as long as we all agree and we all get in on this deal, we can charge higher prices to consumers, and it's a bit of game theory. Where if one person, if one person um, breaks that cycle, then then the kind of cartel falls apart. But so long as the cartels all agree, all the players in the cartel agree to charge a high price, they all just make way bigger margins above their cost price. And the only way they can do that is 
through the regulatory environment such that no new competition can come up to challenge them or replace them through giving a better product to consumers. So just to finish off some of the highlights, uh, he says, the banking industry then has been deliberately constructed by government, its practitioners and investors to prefer regulation and stability to competition and dynamism. Any policy that should target this insularity, sorry, any policy response should target this insularity by instilling some competitive discipline into the industry. The alternative is more regulation and more compliance costs. But if the root cause of Australia's banking problems <coughs> is that the banks, regulators, the government, the lobby groups, and so on, are all in it together, then further uh, regulation should be seen for what it is, the ruling class closing ranks. Now, before I throw it to Alex, who's kind of going along this same path before I read it out, we'll give a quick uh, shout out again to Andrew Bushnell for his article in the SMH, more regulation is not the solution to uh, Westpac revelations. I would also highlight that um, a just a couple of banks, ING and Suncorp, are two mid-sized banks that are that are options uh, away from the big four. And other one one of the other problems in the banking industry is that smaller banks are often linked to the big four, right? So Westpac owns St George, Bank of Melbourne, Bank South Australia, Commonwealth Bank owns Bank West, NAB owns UBank, and so it creates a false perception that there's a lot of options in the industry. But if you're looking for a mid-sized bank where your money is going to be safe, that are alternatives from the big four, you can have a look at Suncorp and ING. Alex, what what are you what are you thinking? Uh, I think and uh, Bushnell makes uh, basically the correct the correct point, and, and he's he's right. What I think a deeper thing is so you had a situation where between 2011 and 2018, is my understanding, um, Westpac is basically running up these charges that go through the gate. So you've got a situation in which we're paying these regulators all this money um, to to essentially look out for these type of things, and it's seven years later, and and it finally comes to light that they've kind of amassed 23 million breaches. Okay, Combank did this, had this very similar thing last. Combank year. did the same. So so what what's absolutely what's absolutely apparent is even if we take we 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 we, we assume argument and we say that Westpac actually just didn't really realise. Um, and that it was it was a, a, a an IT issue. The fact is that the regulators can't regulate. First thing, so that the only thing that can really regulate these these is going to be the market, because it's obviously that the regulation the the regulators can't cope with existing regulations, let alone with new regulations, and that the only thing that that the banks love more than profits is basically new regulations. Um, the problem is you've also got a situation with the banks are already spending hundreds of million dollars each year on compliance and they're still not compliant. Okay, so you've got a situation where the regulators can't regulate, the banks are trying to be compliant. Let's assume that they're trying to be compliant and they're not being compliant. Basically, the people who lose out are the customers and the ordinary citizens. So I would say that the answer is fairly clear. It's exactly what Mr. Bushnell has described. It's to deregulate the banks, if anything, open up more options for finance. Um, and we should also stop giving money to these agencies who are supposed to be regulating. Yeah, well, I mean, it seems like what they're paying for when they're paying 10% of their staff for compliance is actually not, it's not, it's not paying for compliance, it's paying to uh, prevent competition entering the industry. But I, I would also say that basically, if, if Westpac are able to amass 23 million transactions and go for seven years without being found out, I just don't think you would actually have to look very hard into a bank and to the transactions to actually find breaches of, uh, 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 of, of regulations as it is. So there's almost, I would say, that there's an element of compliance or at least an element of um, a relationship here between the regulators and the banks, which would suggest that the, 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 the regulators are under the uh, under the understanding that what, what we'll do is every now and then, we'll just go in and, uh, and have a look at a bank uh, we'll find something, we'll slap them with a fine. And last year was CBA, this year it's Westpac. Um, you know, next year it'll probably be ANZ. Um, and I'll just go kind of round the roulette. And the, the problem, like, why are we paying for this garbage? Why are we paying for it? Yeah, well, we're, we're paying for it because, what was it, some big four pillars approach? Which is one of the things Bushnell uh, refers to in the article. I don't know. It's like an economic policy, which is saying the big four banks should be like the pillars of our finance system. But it doesn't make a lot of sense because we're paying, we're paying for fees 
for no, well, not me in particular, the broader, the... the <laughs> paying for fees for no service. Paying for fees for, fees for no service. Um, dead people are getting charged fees. Dead people are getting charged fees. You are um, paying for agencies to regulate them who are not only not regulating, who, who are regulating them, but the banks aren't following them, but then you're also paying for those, you're paying the salaries of those regulators, then you're also paying the compliance salaries of those people at those banks. Uh, and then you're also paying for the extra margin between the cost price and the sales price of the cartel. So you're paying all of these extra premiums that you wouldn't need to pay if there wasn't regulation in the first place. Not to mention the fact that the products would have actually been improved if there was comp regulation through a competitive environment in the alternative scenario. I would say that, that the, the only last thing I would say is that it's important now to draw the distinction between being pro-business and pro-market. So there is, there is actually a fundamental distinction and one of the distinctions is being pro-market pro or being kind of an economic conservative or, or, or more towards libertarian doesn't mean that you support the business, you support uh, business in everything that it does. What you support is the right of that business to compete against all the other businesses um, on a supply-demand basis. What you don't support is through through governmental levers, businesses being able to gain an artificial advantage over other businesses, not on a basis of pro providing a good or a service at a better price or better quality, but just on the fact that they're so big um, and they're a big business that they can actually weather the cost. Now, here's one last point. This might take us on a bit of a tangent, but I'd like to... We are getting tangential. Watch out for the soundboard. It should be coming next week. Get tangential is so presumably what what um, Oztrack would have wanted Westpac to do was flag these transactions and probably um, close the bank account of the people involved in particularly the child sex trafficking ring. Right. So if you say, well, we, okay, they don't get access to financial services, pedophiles, they're out of there. Right. Recently, in the past little the past few months, we've seen. I think Blair Cottrell's bank account get shut down. Uh, we saw Saga Nova Cards Patreon get shut down um, probably a year ago, which has created the buzz around the ThinkSpot platform and a kind of exodus from Patreon from, from a range of well-known people. Um, as just a general point, what should the line be between um, where people should be denied access to, to a bank account or financial services? Um, I, I would say that a, a business or a bank is more than entitled to deny access to whoever they want, basically. In the same way, however, in the same way that I think that I should, if I own a business, be able to hire whoever I want and provide services to whoever I want. I don't think that just because the banks have acted in, in a manner that's inconsistent with what we, we think is okay, that we should then say that the banks can't do that. I, banks can do whatever they want. And it's actually when they act in a particular way and start discriminating against, assuming that the market operates on fair market principles, that you'll actually see a movement away or, or, or new opportunities and that dynamism um, kind of spur forth. So I, I'm, I'm no qualms about it. Okay, how about, oh, Endos, do you want to take over? Well, uh, very, very good job there, Dukes. I really actually appreciated that analysis this week. That's good. I bring, I've been bringing very strong analysis the past two weeks in particular. This is our premier show, the rap. Premier, yeah, you, you best you best keep that in mind. It's our goddamn premier show. Uh, but moving on to the international story, which is the Hong Kong elections. Doctor Xanax, take it away. Yeah, so we just we'll, we'll cover this quickly because Hong Kong's basically been the story everyone's been talking about. And we, um, we and have in fairness. We haven't really spoken about it that much besides the one. Really, the one episode. Doing and I, I did one. Yeah, we did. Uh, well. We did wax we lyrical did, about it. I would say we did the. Yeah, so we've done two Hong Kong stories, and obviously this one's probably. Uh, do will definitely know more about this story than I do, um, and I'm kind of. I'll leave it open to Duke's as a kind of a softball story that he can take a smack at, and then here we go. We can see if he can um, some last minute delegation. <laughs> last minute delegation. No, 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 no. I'll say, well, because last week when we covered the, uh, another China story, um, we were right. Let's give a quick shout out. We gave the best summation of that China spy story out of anyone in the Australian media. Firstly, because we actually looked at the facts of, of what the, the spy was, uh, was, was, was alleging. And then we also looked at the China story, what, what China was saying happened. We looked at um, the statements from uh, Chinese-owned newspapers 
Uh, and then we also looked at uh, statements on uh, about Xinjiang papers from, from the Beijing Embassy in London. Um, we didn't see anyone else doing that in the Australian media. And we also we came to the conclusion that uh, he had some interesting insights, but we were largely sceptical. Now, Alex was slightly more sceptical than I was, but we were then proven right in, in the subsequent days. Uh, we were actually proven exactly right that he was seems to be a fringe-level spy. At best. At best. And a mm. uh, fraud cop-out at worst. Um, and every single journalist <coughs> at Fairfax covered the story, particularly these alleged analysts um, and um, editors who decided that they were going to put their two cents in, really, and say that this is basically the the biggest thing since the Petrov scandal. Who which, said that? Who's that guy? Uh, AFR guy. AFR. There's an editor. There was, the a bunch of them. there was a bunch of them at the AFR. Now, the AFR um, is supposed to be the Australian Financial Review, but it's just basically... Um, Propaganda. Well, it's basically the City Morning Herald with a li- with the occasional economics uh, update from the RBA. <laughs> That's basically what it is. And when they got found out, and absolutely, so there are a couple of guys who wrote pieces about three days ago, and then it subsequently came out that at best this guy was a fringe analyst. But we had been saying that we said that that it looks like it was going to be that way a week earlier. We, or if you want to also see me call Mike Smith, the Shanghai correspondent, the B word, you can tune in and find it and tell us a timestamp. Well, he absolutely deserved the touch. We'll, we'll chuck, we'll chuck that in the soundboard as well. Do calling someone to be word. Yeah. That'll be a good. Um, you're straight up, bitch. <laughs> okay, so <clears throat> on the twenty fourth of November, Hong Kong um, held some local uh, district elections, and the pro democracy camp. So the, the the democracy the the candidates which aligned themselves with the the plight of the protesters won three hundred ninety two out of four hundred and fifty two seats, taking control taking control of seventeen out of eighteen district councils. So not only that, um, the November twenty four elections had actually the highest number number of registered voters ever for these Hong Kong local elections, registering around 70%. So for what I think I assume are optional elections, basically, which is what really, you know, elections should be, I think, is optional, um, 70% turnout. Um, It was also the greatest number of pro-democracy candidates ever to unite and run together on a commonly agreed platform, turning, well, this, this person who wrote this article, so turning the election into a referendum on the protest movement, uh, they called themselves the Democratic Coalition for the District Council's election and their platform endorsed the five demands of the five-month-old youth-driven insurgency. So um, one of those demands has obviously already been achieved, which is kind of the taking taking off the table of the extradition bill. The three others are protest-related. The fifth uh, relating to the way that the protesters have been treated, etc. And the fifth is the, a resumption of the Hong Kong's electoral reform project abandoned in 2014-2015. So basically in 2014... Beijing said, so the, the, the China, the China uh, position was that it would allow direct election of the chief, chief executive, but only from a list of pre-approved candidates. So that was since dropped. And however, that was perhaps the first in recent memory of mass protests. Did you want to jump in? No? Um, so although the councillors' powers are limited, so these are the people who have been elected, so... Um, what it's given that block a bigger say in the selection process for the chief executive so the kind of prime minister president carrie lamb equivalent yeah so by handing them control of 117 seats on the 1200 member committee that chooses the chief executive so that's basically the immediate outcome is that they've got a, a bigger jump in um in kind of the power to select i guess a pro-democracy say that again say that again what do they have so they've got uh Handed them control of... Who handed them? Can you just repeat the last sure. kind of three sentences? Although a councillor's powers are limited, the victory will give them a, the, give the bloc a bigger say in the selection process for the chief executive, so president equivalent, by handing them control of 117 seats on the 1,200-member committee that chooses the chief executive. So there's two kind of um, chambers to the to the Hong Kong legislative process. There's the chief executive and then there's also the legislative bloc, um, which are two separate two separate things. Um, Dukes, headline reaction. Does the election of these um, councillors reflect the broader consensus, do you think, within 
Hong Kong and kind of the will, I guess, of the, the Hong Kong people. Yeah, sure, I think it does. I'd be interested to see exactly if all the seats were kind of up for grabs and kind of where they are geographically. I think the support for the, the democracy protest um, tends to be really particularly strong in the centre of uh, the city of Hong Kong. And once you get to the outskirts, when it's just people doing business, it's just your everyday person. You're not really in a, like surrounded by universities or in a, like the metropolitan areas. Um, people don't really care. They want to do business. Um, and... And that's why you see, that's why, that's, you know, there, there's definitely an aspect of uh, government relationships um, between the, when, when the, 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 the triads or whoever it was went and beat up some of the protesters, they, they were protesting out in kind of the suburbs and people in the suburbs didn't want to be affected by the protests. Uh, people in the suburbs mainly wanted to do business. Um, uh, I'm told from my Hong Kong friends, and so a range. Of, although there was definitely government uh, involvement in it, the idea that um, people were very angry at protesters when they wanted to come out and and um, paralyse the outskirts of the suburbs after having paralysed the inner city area, um, is is true. That that they didn't want that to happen, right? Um, but I think it is interesting that that it it got such a big majority because. When people say like, um, you know, the US, you know, the the congs, the, these congressional by-elections or, or special elections or whatever they are, are kind of a referendum on Trump. It's like, well, well, what does that really mean? Like Trump is is almost like this abstract idea that they're trying to just paint as, as racist or sexist or, or a kind of bumbling buffoon. But the effect's not really right in front of you. So to say it's a referendum on, on Trump is, it's an abstract at best. Mm. Um, but when you're in Hong Kong and it's like, well, this is a referendum on the protests, it's like, you see these protests every weekend. You see students locked up in, un- in a university. You see archers firing at police from inside. You see um, students sliding down ropes out of secret passageways and then getting on uh, their friends' bikes who are picking them up and driving them home, uh, all in black masks so that uh, they can't get identified by police on kind of the getaway. It's a situation where Hong Kong, for the first time in a long time, is in recession. Every weekend, if you own a retail store that's anywhere close to the city, good luck selling anything. Good luck selling anything even during a normal afternoon when there's a few protesters out. Families don't want to go shopping when there's protests on. Um, You have it affecting kind of every single aspect of your life uh, in Hong Kong. And as far as an election can be a referendum on anything, I think this is about as as, as true as that gets. Um, and I think it's 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 probably true that there's widespread support, that, well, that there's a lot of support for uh, Hong Kong and the democracy movement. Um, and there's a lot of strong support, particularly from like university students. It's also true that a lot of people don't really care. Um, I don't know how many strong Chinese nationalists there are in Hong Kong, but probably out there, they would probably be the, the third largest group out of the three, probably the smallest, uh, from what I can tell. Um, also an interesting piece of information uh, has been that uh, oh, Donald Trump signed the Human well, Rights Bill. we were going to get to that. All right, well, why don't we talk about that then? Okay, does Andy, did you want to jump in just quickly? Well, I was just thinking, with that 30% that didn't vote, and if Dougal's like, geopolitical analysis of Hong Kong is right, I feel as if it'd be, not safe to say, but an idea that the remaining 30% would probably be less sympathising to the protesters if they're sort of away from the university, sort of away from the like the political debate and on the outskirts where they just care about their business. Um, I feel as if it would be interesting to see what that 30% would chuck up. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I pretty much agree with Dewey's analysis there. It's, uh, yeah, very, very well done. <laughs> So basically, straight afterwards, uh, hundreds of, or, or uh, almost occurring simultaneously, hundreds of people gathered at a chartered garden on Sunday afternoon, so um, in Hong Kong, to thank President Trump, so Donald Trump, for signing the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act that could lead to di- diplomatic and economic sanctions on the city. Last week, Trump signed into law the legislation that could impose. Uh, diplomatic and economic sanctions against Hong Kong, much to the anger of China, which said it constituted meddling in the country's internal affairs as it warned that it would result in consequences. The law, among other things, will allow Washington to suspend Hong Kong's special trading status 
based on an annual certification by the State Department, which will gauge whether the city retains a sufficient degree of autonomy under the one country, two systems framework. So as you can imagine, Beijing was not super stoked about that. Beijing has suspended the review of requests by US military ships and aircraft to visit the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region in response to Hong Kong related legislation passed by the US lawmakers, said Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Hua Chunying. Um, Dukes, headline reaction, good Trump, <coughs> bad Trump. Yeah, I really, I really don't know. It's very, I mean, I'm... So far as a country is, is governed by its borders and international rules and regulations, um, this absolutely is meddling in, in another country's domestic politics. Um, but we do have a tendency to meddle in the other countries' domestic politics and then we are usually just discussing whether it's justified or not. And in a range of cases it is, in a range of cases it's not. And we tend not to hold national sovereignty that high on our list of priorities. Um, I think there's definitely a, a big natural sympathy with everybody in Hong Kong, which I deeply share, um, which is they want the same stuff that we have, right? Which we find are important. They want democracy, freedom of speech. Um, we kind of have this, uh, you know, not as much as Americans, but we're always kind of sceptical that there's a big evil government that might come try and get us and, you know, it's almost like there's a range of people who fear in Australia that China's really big and powerful. They might come for us and it's almost like Hong Kong is just like a version of Australia, which is closer to China. Um, a lot of Australians have been to Hong Kong. Um, we've both kind of been under, you know, the British monarchy for extended periods of time together. Um, and so a lot of people are really naturally supportive of, of Hong Kong. Um, which, which I, I share, but at the same time, I also see that it was given back to China. Historically, it was part of China. It was acquired under very, very questionable, if not immoral circumstances um, after the Opium Wars. Um, but you just have now a situation where the two peoples are not really the same anymore. Uh, the two peoples are not the same, but kind of everything else is. Um, and so far as people's sentiments or people's thoughts or people's ideologies or people's personal individual identities might constitute a culture and a culture might constitute a nation, um, well, then you would say Hong Kong is very different from China. But so far as international borders and governments and um, you know, international treaties and, and laws constitute what a what a country is then hong kong is is absolutely part of china um you then also have the culture in in china which is like we've been smashed by uh you know other countries for 200 years um and we've had our lands taken over we've been made very poor uh which is the internal narrative which which has large elements of truth in it in china um although some some elements of of obfuscation of truth and omission and, and, and some lies to it. But um, that narrative of, of victimization definitely has some elements of truth in it. Um, and one of those elements of victimization is that we had this awesome city, Hong Kong, which was which was taken away from us. And now it's time for Hong Kong to, to come back. I mean, if you look at um, Beijing's kind of most recent blockbuster film, um, which, you know, was sponsored by the Chinese government called My People, My Country, um, it plays in, in Burwood. I don't think it plays in anywhere else. Uh, it tells a series of stories about um, from founding of New China in 1949 to, uh, to recently, and it's kind of like a super nationalistic propaganda film. Um, one of the stories is like Hong Kong reunification. And basically the story tells uh, the guy who's is running the... Um, it tells the story of the guy who's running the, the, the ceremony where Hong Kong is handed back from the, Brit from the British to the Chinese in 1997. And it's, it, tells, it connects the story of him who's the event organiser organizer with a watchmaker in Hong Kong. And basically the story kind of runs like the organiser gets the best watchmaker to make him a watch and the British event organiser a watch because they have to work together so that... Um, both their watches are on the exact exactly the right time and so that the flag for China gets raised at exactly midnight, not one second before, not one second after, on 
you know, whatever night it was. And they said, you know, Hong Kong um, must, Hong Kong must return home to China with not one second late or something like that. You know, we can't spare one second that Hong Kong is not part of China anymore. And that's what the Chinese feel. Um, so I kind of see <coughs> both sides. Um, and China feels hard done by, um, the Hong Kong people feel hard done by. It's not an easy problem to solve by any means. Um, it is meddling. Is the meddling justified? Maybe. <laughs> that's my take. Andy, what you, what's your hot take? Uh, I think I'm, I'm quite similar to Dougs. I think I probably sympathise more with the Hong Kongese people than I do the Chinese government. Um, but, yeah, really, I'm, I'm unsure. I'm not really sure how this is going to play out, what, what resolution is going to come to. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm quite similar to Dougal in where it's just sort of in a bit of, uh, bit of limbo at the moment. Yeah, I'm happy to say bad Trump, to be honest. Um, I don't really like meddling. I don't think... I mean, I, it's di- I think it's difficult to make a case in which you can put the, the rights and the, uh, uh, of, uh, of sovereignty of, of a people to, to make their own decisions above um, your own kind of version of, of, of morality, particularly when there's... I don't think you can actually say that there are any... There's no immediate threat to your own people But I mean, present. The, the people... If we're if we're taking the results of this election in hand, the people aren't making the decision. It's it's a government, which isn't representative of the people. Of course, sure, but China wouldn't say that. But um, we say that. Well, if and uh, I think it's true. But the problem is, is that when you uh, when you when you operate on on a level of Borders and sovereignty is kind of a definable, tangible thing. When you yeah. operate on the level of abstraction and moral principles and and even, you know, to democracy to an extent, you're necessarily superimposing your own version of morality on, on, a, on a different people. And I say the first priority is basically let other people sort out their own problems, particularly states, because it's very difficult, for example, for us to, to say, well, Donald Trump should be meddling in, say... Um, Hong Kong, but not, for example, Venezuela or yeah. something like that. That's true. Um, but with a, they does meddle. They have heavy sanctions <coughs> on Venezuela. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there is meddling in that sense. There is. I mean, even is, even still though, like even if you, if it's moral, if we come to the conclusion that it is morally justifiable to do it in this one case, as well as in many other cases, then it's not like condemnable to do it in that one place. Yeah. Look, I think. You know, it's di- it's difficult to tell. But if I was going to put my foot on either side of the camp, is is it good Trump, bad Trump? I'd probably say bad Trump. Yeah. And I know that that will anger a particular old. Probably the majority media. of. It could be even the majority of our listeners, and the, and especially I know that it'll anger one um, alternative media personality in particular, Tim Wilms. Um, from the Unshackled, um, who's been very good to us and who I think is normally Tim Wilms. He's normally right, um, but I think there is a bit of a, a, a schism between um, CHP potentially and the Unshackled on the China issue. Drama in the Australian alt old, old right media. <laughs> I think I think there's room for healthy discussion. Um, I'd be I'd be we're not really alt right, yeah. I'd, Bit, sort of bit my tongue after saying it a little bit. Well, you should have bit your tongue beforehand because <laughs> now you've given the trolls something to work with. Okay, yeah, well, look, um, I'm happy to wrap that up. Yeah. I think that's okay. I mean, a lot of people talk about Hong Kong. My, 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 my fear is that when, you know, people, I think yeah. someone used to say that when, when all, all sides of politics agree on something, normally an extra big effing's coming well, your way. I would also say that while I'm sceptical of it, if I was born and raised in Hong Kong, I would probably be in the protests. I'd probably participate. You in would be protesting if Ling's fast food shop raised their prices by 20%. I just think that I kind of support the Chinese government way of pursuing their interests, the but I kind of also support the Hong Kong students pursuing their own interests. Um, For sure. I just think there's, there's a lack of um, awareness or illumination yeah. regarding the Chinese perspective. Yeah, no, sure. But I also think... Yeah, so I think you can be critical of foreign state intervention without being necessarily critical of the protesters themselves. Like, I think you should say that, like, 
I think like basically anyone in Australia, if they lived in Hong Kong, would probably be like, yeah, I'd go join the protest, blah blah blah. For sure. Um, For sure. I think I, I think you can definitely uphold the individual's right to protest and to kind of pursue his own go after the pursuit of happiness. I've kind sure. of been impressed with the Hong you can't talk when I'm when I'm away from the mic. Um, the level of organization. Yeah, the the level of organization and the persistence. You know, and they're not really scared of the Chinese government. Even when the Chinese government was loading troops up on the border at Shenzhen, and they've had troops there for a long time, um, the protesters still seem to be seem to be going. Um, and you know, they haven't lost lost faith. We can see Hong Kong protesters versus Antifa. That would be a matchup for sure. I reckon that's Antifa. Depends if six, seven man buns on Antifa team or not. So I tell you what, if I see six, seven man bun out there again, he's getting the left, right, good night. See, Doss, that's going to get a suit. That's going to get a suit. You reckon he, he would cop a three-piece combo before you cop a He'd cop a, 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 a one-two Mayweather than a three-four McGregor. Andy, I think he'd probably throw you over the balcony. I reckon right. there's a good chance he would make you a little pretzel. You know what, six-seven man bun and the Victorian socialists that are listening out there and trying to add me on Facebook, you don't want to smoke it. You don't want to smoke it. You should have accepted them. All right, we're going to wrap this up by going back to... Jumping to conclusions. For those who have seen the show, you know we don't leave things untied. And I won this week. I, well, I got the chance to prove my point this week. I haven't won yet, and I probably won't win, but that's okay. My conclusion was that if you're thinking about going to the Gold Coast, go to Byron Bay instead. Now, this is not limited to schoolies. This is... Good clarification. This is just in general. I think if you're going to Gold Coast, there's a few things that you're going there for, right? I'd say first and foremost, you're going for the beach and the weather, right? I would say that's fair. Sure. It's a holiday destination. It's a holiday destination. And with that holiday destination, the second thing that you're probably going there for is the nightlife, right? Or theme parks, wet and wild. Theme parks, they're pretty good. I didn't take those into account, but... Continue. First cracks in the conclusion of becoming a parent. I didn't really think this one through very much, but... Keep going, I'm interested to hear it. I think that you can get those things, except the theme parks, in uh, in Byron Bay without the, the grabbiness of, of the Gold Coast. Um, I know that I'm probably skewed too far anti-Gold Coast. Particularly since being... you've probably had a lot of family holidays there that's been fully paid for and very enjoyable by, by any holiday standard. It's, it's, it's given you bias against the Gold Coast. Let him finish it. Let him make well, after after being point he has. Uh, after being and becoming part of the scrub of degenerates that have been up there, I've been a little bit scarred, and I feel as if sorry. <coughs> the reports I've also received from Byron this week have been very good in that you get you, you get all the they're not very far away. It's an hour and a half bus trip from Gold Coast to Byron, right? Could you be get an hour and a half in the car. It's you know what's what? It, what's, what about Uber? <laughs> Does any bus trip become a measurement for how far something away is? Because that's how people got in between during the week. Um, Certain light years. You got a light years measurement, or? I well, the report is that Byron Bay, of course, it's got pretty much the exact same weather, and it's a lot, and it's a little bit more low key, and in that you don't get all the the hustle and bustle, and the. Uh, the, the grubbiness of the Gold Coast while still getting... <laughs> Can you define grubbiness for the listeners? Well, I mean, if you take a stroll up Cavill Avenue, is which like is quite... Cameron Smith? You saw Cameron Smith Cameron, there? There's a little bit of Greg Bird up there uh, on Gold Coast Titans, Greg Bird. But you walk up Cavill Avenue, during the day it's really nice, right? But when it, when it starts, when the, when the sun goes down... Over the horizon, then it comes a new. It's a new town. It's a bad. It, it's not a bad a bedroom. It's a town for bad men, is what it is. Oh, and Andy, okay, I reckon I've heard enough of this. Andy, what, what, let me let me give you a quick geography lesson because you've obviously you haven't studied it before. What you're talking about is service paradise. Okay, there's a difference between <laughs> service paradise and the Gold Coast. The Gold Coast has is a strip, a quite a large strip, which you no get. service paradise. The Gold, you said the Gold Coast is a strip. Yeah, it's, it, it is a strip. It is a strip. And it's much larger than Surface Paradise. In fact, Surface Paradise is to um, the Gold Coast what Parramatta is to Greater Western Sydney. It well, is one Hollywood of... Boulevard is to uh, 
California. Exactly right. So Andy, Andy needs a lesson in geography first, number one, because there are a whole bunch of if you go to Broad Beach some or of our many, best listeners live in the Gold Coast. There are many, know. many, many, many different faces of the Gold Coast, and Andy's slagging off the entirety on the basis of his one week in surface um, with a bunch of his degenerate um, Nanganator mates. Nanganator <laughs> mates and Tidepot analyst does not a good analysis make. I'm not sure why you let me do this conclusion. No, this is why I was. I didn't get one. Keep talking. I didn't get one thing. This is why I was, I was lobbying. It's, it's Dougal's bringing props. I was lobbying so hard for. <coughs> you can go to you can go to for plenty yours. of different places on the Gold Coast, which will not bring you the grubbiness. I went, I went to Burley, which was really nice, actually. Yeah, was yeah. it different to surface? Was well, different to surface. Okay, sur- well, I you think... just proved my point. Disproved well, yours in one in one sentence. Well, today I was doing some Chinese study for a test coming up, and China has these Chinese has these like four character idioms. I'm going to read you one. It's Mang Ren Mo Xiang. Now our Chinese audience might would know what that is. What it directly <laughs> would what it, what it, think so. What it directly <laughs> translates to is. Blind people touching an elephant. And the backstory is that a long time ago, there was a very wise king who, who sent out some, um, some army members to get, get him two things. One, get me a big elephant, and two, get me some people who were blind from birth, right? So the army people bring him a big elephant and bring him a group of people who are blind from birth. Now, these blind people obviously never seen an elephant before because they were blind. Never touched an elephant, had no idea what the elephant was. So he says, go and touch. He says, this is an elephant, go and touch it. Tell me what it feels like. And um, one of them touches the teeth and he says, this feels, uh, it feels like something sharp. One of them touches uh, the trunk and says, uh, this feels like a rope. One of them touches the ears. He says, this feels like a, a fan. One of them touches the body, says, this feels, this feels like something else. Um, Anyway, they were all wrong because they were only touching one part of the elephant and because they were blind, they couldn't see the full picture. What this idiom means is that you shouldn't make conclusions when you only have access to one part of the data. And Andy should not... uh, Which means Andy, as the blind man, should not make conclusions about the Gold Coast without having access to all the data. And have you been to Byron before? You know I haven't been to Byron before. So not only has Andy only been to one part of the Gold Coast, he's not even been to Byron. And he didn't take into account the best part of the Gold Coast, which is wet and wild. Wet and wild is overrated. Yeah. Where you control the action. That's scary. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty, is that it? Oh, uh, I've lost so miserably this way. You can't jump to conclusions. Fumbling and bumbling. Andy thought that he was coming in hot. No, with I all did this it. first-hand experience. I knew that one sucked. This is the problem with this new... Or this is, you know, this is one of the, one of the problems, I guess, with this new way of looking at things where um, personal experience trumps objective facts and reasoning. And it's definitely a Tide Pod Analyst trait. It's definitely a trait that I think is particularly prevalent among, among Andy's socialist mates. Socialist. Um, look, I'm happy to. Um, I'm happy to jump on Andy for a poor conclusion, but Alex didn't. Alex didn't offer much. Alex Getting rid of schools. Much. I wanted to slam you for that, and I would have slammed you. We all know it's easier to go on the offensive on jumping to conclusions rather than defensive. Not for me. I could have easily. I could have easily defended my position. I already defended the best one of the season. Okay. All right. That's going to wrap us up. Tell us what you think in the comments. Andy, do you want to do the housekeeping? The housekeeping is if you if you like this type of thing, a little bit sloppy today, I think. But you know what? Putting in that work, hour well, after good, hour. It's a good. It's some good analysis. Some Very good analysis. Good analysis yeah, the actual I think analysis. I some of our best today. analysis. Also, um, we did a sick drop of merch. We should really be wearing it today. Um, the reason why we're not wearing it is because we actually wear it so much. We actually had to wash it today. Um, you can check that out. Carnageproductions.com. If you want to buy some a t-shirt or a tank top, uh, Patreon. If you want to support us uh, with donations, check us out on Instagram, Facebook, uh, YouTube. Um, with Andy's given us a report for how to start Twitch. So if you're interested in Carnage House Gaming, that's going to be coming soon. Yeah, that's hard. Um, sports and culture report potentially if Andy's onto it for the week coming up. Alex is writing an article on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So oh, stay tuned for that. 
Um, I'm going to be writing an article. I'm going to be writing an article about uh, Dougal's top five book recommendations for Christmas. And get ready for the soundboard. It's on its way. The soundboard's on its way. Pew, pew, pew. About nine weeks in the planning. Peace perfect, perfect. <laughs> Gun tangential. Oh, wow. You're listening to Carnage House Productions.